In this month's Dhamma podcast, we present Chapter 3, The Course Experience Before, from the upcoming audiobook, Realizing Change, by Ian Hetherington. Chapter 3, The Course Experience Before Students start arriving mid-afternoon. Some stroll down the lane with one small bag, having hitched a ride or taken a bus. Others unload a mound of bedding, suitcases and sitting cushions from their cars. Welcome to the Vipassana Meditation Centre. There is an air of anticipation as they check in and complete their course registration forms. They find their accommodation, unpack their belongings for this very special ten days. There will be a light meal in the early evening, and the course is due to begin about 8pm. Plenty of time then to walk around the site, get their bearings, to investigate the bathrooms, dining rooms, walking areas, and the way to the meditation hall, where they will spend much of the next week and a half. Time to reread the course information material and remind themselves of the daily timetable. Maybe a question or two come to mind to ask the organisers before the course gets started. Some of these students have travelled thousands of miles to attend this retreat. How did they come to be here? Was it a personal recommendation from a family member or friend? Was it a book, magazine article, film, or perhaps some chance event? Migraine was what brought S.N. Goenka to Vipassana. By his mid-twenties, Goenka was already a highly successful businessman and a leader of the Indian community in Burma. However, success had brought with it a loss of tension, a loss of ego, and he began to suffer from severe headaches requiring morphine treatment for the pain. Despite consulting the best doctors around the world, he could not find a cure for his condition. There was a real danger that if he continued with this treatment, he would become a morphine addict. Then a good friend, sensing that Goenka's illness was psychosomatic, suggested he take a meditation retreat with Sayaji Ubakin, who as well as being a lay meditation master, also held high government office as accountant general of the country. Goenka was attractive, but there were some hurdles to overcome. Could meditation really succeed where the cream of the medical profession had failed? And then, he feared that he would be required to convert to Buddhism while he belonged to a strict Hindu family. A meeting with Ubakin helped overcome these reservations and convinced Goenka to give the technique a trial. But a shock was in store for him. When he explained that it was because of his headaches that he wished to learn Vipassana, Ubakim refused to accept him as a student. Only if Goenka was willing to work according to the technique for purification of mind, prepared to accept any physical improvements as byproducts of a deeper process, could he join the course. Deeply affected by his teacher's kindness and wisdom, Goenka agreed to work as instructed, and even after one course, the changes in him were dramatic.
Tony White gave up his job as a London-based health professional in 1995 and travelled to India to go backpacking. He did this to find out more about himself, the world and different cultures and to experience some freedom for possibly the first time in his life. I was 29 years old and quite dissatisfied with my life. I would have long periods of being low in mood and had experienced these states for as long as I could remember. I'd just come out of a long and painful relationship. I drank too much alcohol, smoked tobacco and cannabis, and occasionally dabbled in other drugs such as LSD and speed. I tried everything I could think of to become at peace with myself and to be happy. From working hard, to getting very intoxicated in my free time, to having a lot of sex with a number of different women. It didn't seem to matter what I did. I still had this emptiness, a sadness and dissatisfaction, and the more I tried to achieve happiness, the worse I felt. I'd been working as a psychiatric nurse on an acute admissions ward for four years, and prior to this, in other psychiatric hospitals for seven years, and I felt really burned out, as though I'd given all I could to the patients and the job, and I just couldn't give any more. I felt like a burden to the ward. So my idea was to travel to India and find the mysteries of Asia. I'd been doing transcendental meditation for two to three years, but with limited success. Along with a couple of other Western travellers who were interested in learning the technique, we set off from Udaipur on a long, dusty, tiring and uncomfortable journey to Bhuj and Gujarat and the Vipassana centre where a course was soon to begin. I was so taken by the thought of doing the course that I arrived at the centre with only 35 rupees, totally unsure as to how I would get back to Delhi. Tony White from UK Two weeks after their wedding in September 1981, Tim and Karen Donovan set off from the USA on a bicycle trip that eventually led them through Europe and India to the lakeside city of Pokhara in Nepal. After a couple of days, we stored our bicycles with an innkeeper and rented trekking gear. We set out on a three-week trek and walked up to the small village of Muktinath. During this time, the tension increased between us. Although we were realising our shared dream of trekking in the Himalaya, we argued and cried our way through beautiful rhododendron forests, spectacular mountain views and strenuous climbs up endless mountain trails. One memorable time, we stopped to take in the spectacular view of the Annapurna Range, attempting to be present with the awesome expanse of mountains sparkling white against the brilliant blue sky. We felt helpless. We could not fully appreciate the beauty because our minds were clouded with suffering, emotions, thoughts. It was in Goropani, as a little traveller's lodge, that we met a German woman who gave us the information that changed the course of our trip and our lives. We were talking to her about a book on Zen that we had read. 
and how we were attracted to the teachings of the Buddha. We mentioned that we'd heard about a man named Goenka who taught Vipassana courses free of charge. She brightened up and said, I just finished a course with him in Calcutta last month and he'll be going to Kathmandu to teach a course in early May. Tim and I were both thrilled at the news. We could easily finish our trek and be in Kathmandu by that time. Karen Donovan, USA My religious background and upbringing always stressed how I should live and conduct my life. In other words, I knew intellectually how I should be acting, but something inside me didn't always cooperate. Ever since I can remember, I've been searching for something to change me inside, so I could be the way I knew I should be, without the constant battle within to do what was easier or most pleasant. In 1988, while on vacation with my wife, near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I was browsing in a used bookstore and happened to come across a copy of William Hart's book, The Art of Living. Since it was used and cost only $2.95, I bought it and thought I'd eventually read it. When I did, a couple of months later, I knew I had to take the 10-day Vipassana meditation course and I felt, even before taking it, that this was what I'd been searching for. One of the things that really impressed me was there was no charge for the course. It was strictly up to you to give if you wish, following the course. What ulterior motive could there be with this kind offer? I took my first course in March 1989 in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, and it was the most important thing I've ever done in my life. Ray Goss is a sports broadcaster in Pennsylvania, USA. He's married with seven children. I've been feeling for the last couple of years that I'm going through a change and that I need to go through a change and that some major change is coming up or I'm in the throes of it, which is making life unbearable as it is. And I said, I really needed to clear my mind and my friend said, Vipassana meditation, you see? And I thought, there it is, that word again. And so that's when I wrote off for the information, applied, and here I am. Pre-course interview with first-time student, Australia, 1990. Tanda Wynn is a 34-year-old female engineer working as a project manager in Bangkok, Thailand. The word Vipassana is not strange for us, since I belong to a very traditional Burmese Buddhist family. I consider myself a very devoted Buddhist, and I started my Vipassana practice at the age of 16 in one of the monasteries in Rangoon, Burma. Whenever I was free, I wanted to spend my time in a Dhamma centre. I did it almost every year. But I experienced no change in my state of mind. I was as short-tempered as I was before and losing the balance of my mind most of the time. I was a very emotional person and I remember my mother used to say, you work very seriously doing meditation in the course, 
but whenever you come out, you don't change at all. If you know Dhamma, why don't you apply it to reduce your anger? I felt really defeated. I knew that it was not good, but I did not know how to change. Being away from my home country and studying and working here in Bangkok, I had no place and no facility to practice Dhamma as a foreigner by sitting meditation. I only thought of meditating at a monastery at that time. Then I discovered one monastery associated with a Burmese Sayadaw, or monk teacher, in a province of Thailand. During a long holiday, I went alone to that monastery and tried to practice Dhamma. I had to practice alone because I considered the Sayadaw was very old to coach me for my practice. I took reading materials with me to serve as daily self-discourse for motivation. There I read The Art of Living, chapter by chapter each day of my practice. I had had that book for nearly a year and frankly, I did not like it as the approach seemed too scientific. I was doing meditation as my religious achievement and I considered myself as a very obedient follower of Buddha. But actually, this book inspired me a lot, and I wanted to do the course as suggested. Fortunately, I found out that Thailand had a Vipassana centre near Bangkok. I registered my name for the course held in early October 1995. It was the only two weeks annual leave I received from my company for the whole working year. This is where I came to know Vipassana in this tradition. A gong rings for food. There's a tasty soup, some homemade bread or cookies and tea. Over the meal, introductions are made and acquaintances struck up. For some, this is their first encounter with meditation of any kind. For others, it's the first taste of Vipassana in this tradition. And then there are the old students who have taken courses before and are coming back for more. Looking around at the mix of faces, it's a real cross-section of race, age and type. What are they hoping to get out of the course? To be more calm within myself, make some decisions about my life and where it's going. To have less fear and anger, to be able to confront that, look at it and work my way through it. To make a better person of myself, mentally, physically, spiritually. I'm here now, got to do it, no turning back. A way of getting in touch with my essence a learning process, a new experience. Excerpts from interviews with first-time students in Australia, 1990. A pre-course talk follows the meal. This is done so that students are thoroughly briefed about the discipline, timetable and practicalities of living at the centre during the course and have the opportunity to raise any questions. The staff and course management introduce themselves and welcome everyone to the centre. The code of discipline, it is explained, 
exists solely to help the students get the best results from their meditation and should be followed carefully. The first and most basic rule is that they remain for the whole course. The technique is taught step by step and 10 days is the minimum period in which it's possible to learn it. If someone leaves in the middle of the course, they won't give themselves a chance to learn the entire technique and they won't give the technique a chance to work for them. Therefore, every individual should make a firm decision that he or she will stay for the entire period of the course, from beginning to end. Noble silence is a must if someone is to get maximum advantage of the retreat. In practice, this means that during the first nine days of the course, Students are requested not to have any contact with fellow meditators by speech, writing or gestures. They must cut off all contact with each other as well as with the outside world. Taking notes or writing journals is also not permitted. If there are any material problems, for instance in relation to food, accommodation or health, students can speak with the course manager. If they have any problem or questions about the meditation, they can see the assistant teachers. Notices are posted regularly concerning the day's schedule and other points of information about the course. On the last full day of the course, students will be able to share their experiences. They'll be able to talk with each other and get reacquainted. However, during the period of serious intensive work, it's vital to maintain complete silence in order not to disturb oneself or others. Noble silence ends on the morning of day 10, but the course doesn't finish until about 7.30 following morning. This interval between the end of the intensive meditation period and re-entry to regular life is an essential transition. The teaching, how to integrate the practice into daily life, continues. The last day is important and everyone is expected to stay until the very end of the course. During the course period, students have to discontinue all other spiritual practices that they've learned and work according to the instructions they are given. This includes all forms of prayer, worship or religious ceremony, as well as other meditation techniques and healing practices. This is not to condemn any other practice or technique but to give a proper trial to the technique of Vipassana without mixing it with anything else. To learn, one has to be receptive, to be prepared to accept the teaching with discrimination and understanding, to accept the guidance of the teacher, at least for the course period. During the 10 days, it's essential to work exactly according to the instructions, without adding or omitting anything. At the end of the course, the student can decide which practice best suits them. In order to preserve the meditative atmosphere, it's important that students remain within the course boundaries and avoid contact with anyone from outside. Separate walking areas are provided for men and women. Complete segregation of the sexes will be observed throughout and there should be no physical contact between members of the same or opposite sex. Couples, friends or family members should not communicate in any way during the intensive period of the course. 
Vipassana, the talk concludes, is the technique of self-observation. To succeed at it, try to work as if you're alone, working in isolation, keeping to yourself. Try not to create distractions for others and ignore any distractions that might occur. The course will begin shortly. We wish you all success. After a few final questions, the meeting ends and everyone prepares for the first sitting in the meditation hall. Even before the course begins, the discipline of silence takes effect. A stillness in the dusk. As they wait, students, alone with their thoughts, at the beginning of a journey inside. I hung the brochure with the course schedule on the wall of my room and often looked at it in disbelief. Counting the meditation periods, I kept thinking, is that really 10 hours? Are they nuts? Am I nuts? What am I doing here? Why am I doing this to myself? Something had drawn me to the place, certainly, but as the 10-day course geared up to begin, I still could not pinpoint what it was. It had taken an encounter with an old student, a Western manager of an Indian centre, to shift my Vipassana pot from the back to the front burner. I remember this man with much gratitude. He was about my age, an American, and waspy like myself, so there was that ingress from the start. But what sold me on the course was his lack of salesmanship and the intangible something that he radiated when he spoke of Vipassana and Dhamma. He was just what I needed, at just the right time. Instead of pontificating or preaching, I remember him quietly smiling at my questions and saying, If you're attracted, then just go sit. Marty Cooper is studying counselling psychology at a graduate school in San Francisco. He's also a drummer, writer and political activist. All was so sudden. I had been so much in love and we recently split and it was so painful. So painful. And suddenly I decided that it was enough. Enough suffering. All of a sudden, I chose the non-desire stream. I went from desire to non-desire. It was very clear. No pain anymore. And within a few weeks, I found myself sitting a 10-day Vipassana course directed by Asen Goenka at Bodhgaya in India, the place where Buddha became enlightened. That was in February 1977. Before that, I had practiced meditation for 20 years, but I never sat an intensive period, always one hour at the most. So, when my younger daughter, who was around 17, decided she would not see me anymore, I naturally thought, am I so bad that both my girlfriend and my daughter don't want to see me again? And I began to search for a long period of meditation, some intensive program which could change me. Jean-Claude Say was a painter and filmmaker before training and practicing as a psychotherapist. Retired now, he lives in Paris, France. 
I heard a girl say to me, When you came up here, you were so drawn and so lined. Was I, I thought? I didn't know. Excerpt from pre-course interview with first-time student in Australia, 1990. By the age of 25, when I began meditating, I had already gone through challenging times of life where I was involved with recreational drugs such as marijuana, hashish, cocaine and hallucinogenic drugs. I had been caught by the police once for possession of drugs when I was 16 years old, which was reported to my parents. I also went through a time of stealing things from shops, other people and generally feeling like I could take anything that was around. I was caught three different times by shops and my parents were informed. Perhaps surprisingly, my upbringing was very comfortable, financially and emotionally. I was brought up in the city. My father worked successfully as a professional. My parents were committed to each other and to parenting. And I was given every educational, social and sporting opportunity I could imagine. Private schools, ski houses, summer houses on the beach, after-school programs in sports and arts. My last big ignorance was sequential sexual relationships. This proved the hardest pattern to break, even after I began meditating. Jenny Parker, Chicago, USA I was on my way to my ninth meditation retreat, and I admit to having felt heavily jaded. I was attending with a been-there-done-that attitude. My first retreat had been in India 31 years before. I'd wanted to become a monk, to give away all my worldly belongings at 21, and become a student of the Dhamma on my way to a quick and romantic enlightenment. Like many young acolytes, I soon found the path to be steeper than I'd bargained for, and stepped rather quickly back into my comfortable householder slippers. But the habit of regular meditation had stuck, along with a pattern of suffering the occasional ten-day tune-up, so highly recommended by Gautama the Buddha as the true path of ultimate liberation. I arrived at Bragg Creek Camp in Alberta, where the course had been organised, knowing full well that the basement of my heart was choked with the junk of decades, that my two-hour daily meditation practice hadn't even begun to clear away the weighty debris. I knew that I was barely maintaining, that I needed help of some sort that I hadn't been getting. I'd done three types of group therapy, four meditation courses, and seen one therapist within the past couple of years. Good stuff, perhaps, but it all failed to get to the root of my problems. It was clear that I needed something else. I'd heard about the intensity of the course schedule in this tradition of Vipassana. The emphasis for 11 hours a day on sitting meditation. So I was apprehensive going into the 10-day commitment. But I also welcomed the challenge. I knew that there would be a fair bit of tapas fire or friction generated and that was exactly what I needed before I would start to feel any clearer and lighter. 
After checking in and being shown to my room in the summer camp dorm, I felt some mild letdown. Oh, this again, said my mind. We've done this before and here we are again. What exactly is the point? I really wasn't sure. Jason Farrell, a teacher and writer, lives in Canada. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariati, a nonprofit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyatti.org. That's pariyati.org. For more information about Vipassana meditation, please visit www.dhamma.org. That's dhamma.org.